Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. And welcome to today's show. Uh, We've got a fantastic episode lined up again. um, So today we have a real expert in electrical machine design and development, uh, Dr. Auntie uh, Raikkonen. Uh, from Smic Lab, um, he's the founder and CEO of that business. He's someone who caught my attention a few years ago because he was doing some really interesting work in a field that was parallel to one I was working in. Um, I've been following him since, and uh, really, really pleased that uh, he's agreed to uh, record an episode today, talking uh, about his experience in in motor development and motor technology and and what's happening. So, Auntie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So if we could uh, kick off in the uh, traditional way and um, if you could tell us a bit about your background and, um, you know, where, where you're from and, and how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Okay, sure. So what I'm doing now, very briefly, like mentioned, I'm the phone founder, CEO, and so far the only employee of Smeka Limited, which is a Finnish company doing consultancy on electric motor design. And how I ended up doing this, well, it was partially by accident or by chance. I was studying at Aalto University, Finland, about 10 years ago, well, closer to 15 now, Mm. trying to pick my major out of very many, very interesting options. And I ended up picking motors somehow. I'm not really sure why, but I think that is a quite a typical story uh, on people, how they actually end up doing what they do. Anyways, I did pick up motors. I liked it. I stayed on the field, got my PhD, started my consultancy roughly about the same time as the EB business started really kicking off. So, And this interesting thing with people who do this today, so like you, like me, when we were sort of picking our choices for studying back, you know, I mean, obviously not that long ago, because... Uh, not that long. But probably a little bit longer than we'd uh, like to uh, remember or admit. It doesn't feel like long ago anyway. But back then, you know, it was way before electric vehicle things, you know, were really being talked about. Motor technology, sort of very much industrial machines, um you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the topic that it is today, so quite a, a bit of good fortune there in terms of um, picking picking that. Do you, were you aware? Do you think at the time of how important um, electric machine design would become? Is was that sort of a was something that was was talked about back then, or you know, was it just just pure sort of interest and and a bit of chance? Oh, I can't really say I had, I had any idea. Well, we had EVs, of course, even back then, but they were more like a curiosity. <laughs> yeah. I would say. 
Yeah, we we had um, well in in the early days of, of my uh, previous business, uh, we had a lot of jokes in the UK about uh, what were called milk floats. Um, so the the most yes. the best known electric vehicles were for delivering milk, um, and they were very slow and um, ugly. And um, this was the the sort of typical reference point for most people. A very very long way from a Tesla um, or a Porsche Taycan. Did you did Finland also have milk floats or was it some other kind of electric um, curiosity? No, we didn't have such, but I think the Finnish postal service has been using electric vans for quite a long time now. Right. They are quite decent, not awfully slow or not obviously bad like that, but still. Yeah, okay. And I mean in Finland generally, uh there's some you know, connection to where I'm based in the north of England, where there's a, a sort of historic legacy of electrical machine design. But Finland, you know, for a relatively small country, is absolutely up there in terms of electric machine design, the academic work, but also the industrial activity, you know, a number of notable companies uh, based in Finland, you know, ABB, the marine business, Azipod, you've got the Danfoss business now, which uh, was Vizedo, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, plus some really fantastic academic work going on. Wh- wh- why do you think that is? Why is um, Finland so strong in this uh, area? Okay, now I'm, ac- no, I'm actually a bit embarrassed because I don't know <laughs> how to answer that. I think it is indeed related to ABB. Because as you may know, ABB emerged as a merger of three companies. Mm. There was this ASEA, which was maybe Swedish, I think, and then Brown Powery from Switzerland. And one of them has had earlier merged with uh, Strömberg, which was a Finnish company. And that had a long history. It started in the late uh, 19th century, I think, yeah. as a workshop kind of thing. And then started delivering motors to yeah. basically any application outside Finland. Ah, it's great, uh, and and uh, you know, I guess that sort of technology-based, engineering-based, because I mean, obviously, it goes beyond uh, just machines, but really strong country generally for technology and engineering. So uh, brilliant. So, what uh, what was your particular focus area for your PhD? Uh, for my PhD, I studied. Uh, AC losses in random wound high-speed machines. Ah, okay. So winding losses, basically. Which is, is an incredibly topical uh, subject now. Yes. So so you, you then went and um, decided to set up in um, in consulting. What was the, uh, the, the motivation behind that? Well, the motivation, how to put it, I had had some interest in setting up a business for quite a long time. Before I started blogging on machines and motors and finite element analysis, maybe one or two years ago before I set up my business. Then I got a sort of a lucky break. I had a prospective client contact me to get some work done. And for that, I needed a business. And I decided that. Okay, the money is good enough to at least cover the expensive of setting up said business. So I went ahead with it, started getting more business quite soon, and basically stayed on it. 
in the beginning, it was strictly part-time because I started in summer 2017, I think, while I was still finishing my thesis. After that, I continued as a postdoc in Aalto University for about 18 months more and ran my business part-time on the side. And after that, well, my contract as a postdoc ended, so I basically jumped full-time into this consulting and motor design thing. Okay, brilliant. And 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 so give us an example of a sort of typical um job that you would find yourself doing now. Where where do um you know what what are people calling you in to solve? Well obviously I help businesses with motor design and more specifically they are usually such businesses that either need or use custom motors but don't really have that kind of uh, expertise in-house so companies who are closely dealing with motors but are not making them themselves and what kind of projects i'm working on well i seem to have like three semi-spontaneous focus areas okay the first one <laughs> the first one is ev or traction motors in general quite obviously yeah, a lot of activity in that space at the moment. Yes. The second one is high-speed machines, like uh, compressors or flywheels, probably because we have quite a strong industrial experience here related to them. So, And when you say, because obviously high-speed in EV traction is a thing, but I think the high-speed you're talking about there on industrial is maybe another, what sort of, how high is high? Okay, yeah, that's actually one of the things that is not clearly defined. Okay. Different authors may mean different things by high speed. They can be speaking about RPM or the frequency yeah. or the surface speed of the rotor. But in the industrial scope, I would say it begins at 30,000 RPM and goes up from there. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, great. So... Because, you know, a high-speed traction motor might be 18,000 RPM, but that's uh, low yes. speed in comparison. Um, so 30,000. So, so kind of direct drive for turbo machinery, um, that yes, kind of application. exactly. Right, right. Okay. Um, all right. And that's so that's two. What's the, where's the third? Yeah, and then the third area is aviation motors. So for electric aircraft, air taxis, stuff like that. And 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 that's uh, we see a lot. Of, well, we say we see a lot in the press. I think I have a quite a a big echo chamber in terms of looking at electrification stuff all the time. There's quite a bit of activity around electrification in aircraft at the moment. Do you see that as a as a, a growing area or a different uh, you know different? Yeah, I think it definitely is coming. I mean, electrification of aviation, maybe. Not as soon as you might expect, based on the media publicity that is yeah. being pushed around at the moment. But it will be coming. I'm quite certain of it. And there's, there's, I think people sometimes people don't realize um, there's kind of two. Well, there's more than one kind. But the 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 you've got the really far out uh, kind of EV tall electric sort of air taxi type uh, concepts, but then. Then in, in more conventional fixed-wing aircraft, you've got electric propulsion systems. But then also there's quite a bit of activity around electrification of sort of accessory systems um, 
and somewhat hybridization in conventional fixed wing aircraft um and, well and actually in in rotary aircraft so hybrid um kind of uh, drives for helicopters and things like that kind of people kicking around so there's there's sort of a varying degrees of very extreme completely different airframe concepts you know multi-rotor like big drone type stuff right up to it's probably going to look exactly the same as a conventional aircraft but it's got a few more electrical uh, devices and systems on is is there a particular um type that you are more uh seeing more activity around um is it more on this sort of conventional um fixed wing it you know auxiliary drives and actuators stuff or is it the the more sort of extreme uh multi-rotor eVTOL area Okay, that's actually a very good question. I'm definitely not an expert on this topic, but I think the electrification of the auxiliary systems, it has been going on for about, what, 40, 50 years now. Mm. Because in the early days, it used to be like hydraulics or pneumatics only, or even wires and cables. Yeah, And slowly they have been replaced by motors more and more. And well, yes, I expect that trend to continue. Yeah. And on that note, there have been plans for about like, how to put it, partially electric propulsion, either by having like a starter generator inside a conventional jet engine or the so-called boundary layer ingestion or injection, what is it, which is basically works by adding small motors and fans somewhere near the body of the machine to basically decrease the aerodynamic yeah. resistance or stuff like that. And then you, of course, have those elect like actual electric propulsion. And based on feasibility, I would maybe divide it into three categories. The furthest away are full-on electric jet aircraft, you know, the kind that takes hundreds of passengers yeah. over the Atlantic. And at the moment, there's no way at least batteries are going to manage that. Yeah, yeah. And in between, you have maybe the EV tolls, so electric air taxis in practice that are actually flying at the moment, some prototypes at least, but they have been gaining quite a lot of criticism recently as well, because well, various reasons, the certification process might be difficult. I hear, again, definitely not an expert on this yeah. at all. And also the business or the market might simply not be there. Yeah, it's very, they're very different aircraft to certify compared to, you know, conventional um conventional aircraft and there's a sort of tipping point i mean the re you know i don't fly a helicopter really for two reasons uh one i have no skill to fly one and two i don't have the money to be able to buy or operate one um so you know even if i did have the money i don't have the skill so the kind of potential to open up that sort of aircraft with um more autonomous systems or fully either fully autonomous or something that's basically as easy to fly as it is to drive a car is quite interesting um to be able to get in and kind of go but it's a it's, it's a long way off because the whole system isn't really set up to to deal with um 
with that kind of um, with that kind of aircraft. So your in your line of work, is it um, are you more sort of um, seeing uh, inquiries for yourself on the conventional aircraft uh, systems then, or is it the eVTOL um, area where you're being asked to look at um, look at drives? Well, how to say it? I haven't got that many queries at all, but mm. at the moment it's something like a 40-60 split okay. between eVTOLs and conventional aviation, with conventional being in the small majority. Uh, that's interesting. And, and it must be then, uh, well, this could be the wrong assumption, but presumably you're working with um, companies outside of Finland. You know, there's, uh, you must be sort of dealing relatively globally with, with people. Yeah, very much so. I have a few clients in Finland, but all the others are basically from Western Europe and then the Americas. Yeah. So, so based on that work, you know, you got the, so the three areas, the high-speed machines, the traction machines, and the aviation. Do you see any kind of common trends or issues a- across those sorts of, of, uh, of machines? What's the, what do you see in the market? Well, how to say it? Um, well, this is not a trend per se, but it's more like an observation. Mm. I think the motors field is developing quite fast at the moment. And why it's doing that is very interesting because I think the building blocks, they have existed for about, what, 20, 30 years now. But earlier, there hasn't been demand for, let's say, any kind of, well, some kind of, but not the kind of specialized high-performance machines that we are seeing now. Because earlier, back in the day, what motors did well, they would be driving all kinds of machinery from kitchen appliances into huge pumps used in mines and so on. Or they might be pulling a train or propelling an icebreaker maybe somewhere. But that was about it. So nobody was really caring that much about the performance of the machines, and by performance here, I mean like a combination of efficiency and power density. But now with the uh, booming popularity of EVs has basically kicked that demand into high gear. Yeah. And is it, do you think a thing, um, so I I was wondering about this uh, just yesterday with someone that effectively an awful lot of how a motor is designed today like we we don't necessarily even realize it because it's buried in the modeling tools and simulation tools but there are kind of old design principles and empirical relationships and data that kind of sit behind how we do a machine design um which haven't necessarily had to be challenged or, or needed to be challenged do you think that um you know, we're starting to see a, a lot of sort of fundamental rethinking around um, around some of those uh, rules in terms of how we would uh, design a machine or the these sort of empirical relationships that we've relied on for a long time. Well, I would say both and basically the kind of, okay, let's put it that way. If you open a book on motor design, mm. most likely it's quite old, a couple of decades at least from the first print. Yeah. So it has been 
written with the kind of industrial machines in mind. So the rule of thumbs written there for sizing the machine, like uh, what kind of anything you can have. They can be a bit out of date if you consider like more demanding applications. Yeah. So, so in that sense, we are indeed moving beyond the old principles. But on the other hand, most of the machines today, even today, they are still based on the same machine topologies. So yeah. the kind of machines that have existed for quite a long time in one form or another. Yeah. And and um, you, so some of those things might be like, for instance, when you look at the design rules around insulation systems, I think the insulation classes, the historical ones, stop at about 180 uh, degrees. Um, but we now have in particularly high performing machines regularly going up to so 200 plus 220 so we're into kind of uncharted well well out of the those sort of standard design rule territory on something as fundamental as um insulation resistance yeah yeah you are right so basically yeah you can apply and you have to apply there the traditional design approach or the principle so let's say but you can't apply it exactly as it's been written because like mentioned we are moving beyond it all the time yeah and it, do you think part of what is driving that so in the past the machines were developed um you, you you sort of had a you plotted the required life cycle for the machine which for an industrial machine was long you know fifty thousand hours or something or maybe even more um design life and uh, you know you sort of have these lookup tables where you kind of went well that's my design life and that's then these are all the maximum permissible uh, properties across here but is it do you think just a, just a function of the those design lives you know sort of consumer goods and uh, vehicles and stuff the design life is shorter um, than it might be for an industrial motor or do you think there's genuinely um, sort of improvements been made in in fundamental material technology and you know things like that yes of course there are several of them at least maybe the key one one of the key ones at least was the invention of rare earth magnets like the neodymium magnets in the i think it was in the 80s yeah because those basically presented a stepwise improvement against what they had back then because earlier you had ferrite magnets and similar, which could support flux densities up to 0.4 teslas or something. And then came the neodymium versions, which even the very early iterations could go up to one tesla or something like that. Yeah. And now we are, of course, pushing the 1.4, 1.5 yeah. limit. Yeah, the second enabling factor was the introduction of power electronics, obviously. Yeah like IGPTs, well, they had some, some things earlier, like the resistors and stuff like that, but they were mostly uh, restricted to like high-end demanding applications, like icebreakers, trains, stuff mm -hmm. like that, I think. Yeah, and, and power electronics are now developing uh, really rapidly, very high efficiency, high frequency switching devices. So, 
yes. there's the potential for more and more uh, development on that side to to have uh, simply higher RPM machines or do really interesting things with uh, with the switching and control. Um, so things like uh, switch reluctance machines or um, interior permanent magnet where you've got partial uh, reluctance effects and, and stuff like that. Do you think, uh, again, well, something I was talking about recently was the advent of uh, better simulation capabilities. Uh, I mean, at the moment, we're still, we're actually just sort of moving into 3D simulation being widely available for electromagnetic uh, systems and and obviously much higher power capability meshing for thermal and, and fluidic um, is the, the sort of improvements in simulation um, techniques and tools and uh, speeds is is that a, a, a contributing factor as well? Do you think? Yes, of course they are useful, especially for pushing the in envelope or getting a highly optimized machine. Because when you are aiming for something that is highly optimized, then of course you need high fidelity simulations. To predict the perform performance of the machine and to be able to actually optimize it. Yeah. If you don't have that capability, you are basically reduced to prototyping a lot, which again then takes a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, rig time. But we all like a bit of rig time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> so then uh, so you mentioned about different machine topologies um earlier. Can we expand on that a bit? What What do you think the kind of main topologies are that we're seeing at the moment? Well, uh, depends on the application. That's the <laughs> boring answer. Yeah. In the industrial scope, they are mostly induction machines because they are well cheap, reliable. Mm. They work. They start directly on the line. Stuff like that. Yeah. If we move into traction applications, they are almost all of them are permanent magnet machines with the kind of V-shape interior permanent magnet rotor that I think almost anybody has seen in some picture or video at some point in their life. Yeah. So those are the main main workhorses at the moment. Yeah, there's, there's some interesting, I mean, on traction motors, we've got um, some people making noises again around uh, wound rotor machines. So BMW talking about that. Obviously, Renault been doing uh, that kind of machine for a while. Do you think there's real potential for wound rotors to come back? I and mean, it seems a bit counterintuitive, actually, because they're low, typically, you know, low um, rotor magnetic field potential of, of that sort of machine. So why do you think people are looking at, at, at that kind of thing again? Well, there can be several things going on. One is that, well, they don't obviously have rare earth permanent magnets. Yeah. Which is in a way a good thing. Yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe I will have to stress that the rare earth materials, they are not rare in the actual sense of the word, <laughs> but they still do present some sort of a supply chain issue. Yeah. Because as I at least as I understand is, is that most of the commercially viable deposits of rare earth materials are in China at the moment. So there are 
there's a like a geopolitical uncertainty element going on. Yeah. And if you get a, if you could get rid of that, that would of course help some people sleep better at the least. <laughs> yeah. Why why do you think though so I mean it surprised me to see the, those machines sort of making a resurgence because I the, the, the go to for me in that instance would be an induction machine rather than a wound rotor. So why do you think people would choose a wound rotor over an induction machine? Okay, that's that's a very good question. Actually, I don't really have an answer to that because they are indeed very similar in, in terms of the challenges mm. they face. The main one being that you have very high losses in the rotor if you compare to a permanent magnet machine, of course, and you will have to cool those losses somehow. Yeah. Take the heat away, so you will will have to design a cooling system for that. One thing might be, I'm not fully certain about this. I haven't gone through the math myself, but I think you might be able to get a bit more torque or power action machine for the same rotor losses, which is a difficult one to cool. Yeah. But again, I won't fully get behind that claim because, like I mentioned, I haven't worked it through myself yet. Yeah, I should probably have to do it at some point when I have <laughs> the time, which is never usually. Yeah, uh, it's you know because I mean I've you know Tesla quite successfully used induction machines um, and sometimes combined with um, IPM in the drive line, um, and then the, the, these wound rotors sort of introduce some other challenges um with wear and tear on brushes and things like that and there was a sort of argument saying it was potentially lower cost but i think i if you look at the cost build up on a wound rotor machine versus an induction i don't imagine it's all that different um and in some ways actually probably could make an induction machine cheaper uh, than a wound rotor i would think so had me scratching my head a little bit i was wondering if it was to do with start uh, zero speed torque or the, the the other interesting one with with vehicles is um, we're all basically all guilty of ridiculously over specifying the motors. So the the target everyone is aiming for is a really good drive cycle efficiency, which is partially loaded, light loaded conditions. But then the the sort of peak power of the machine needs to be um, you know much much higher than um, than what it's actually ever going to do for most of the most of its life and and the key driving cycle. So that perhaps that trade-off in partial loads um, versus um, the, the sort of delta between, um, you know, uh, continuous operating and peak. Maybe you can stretch that, the, the relationship between continuous and peak further in a wound rotor machine. Yes. At least the one thing that they do have going on for them is that, uh, well, you can easily control the field or the flux density mm. that the machine is operating at. Because in a permanent magnet machine, the permanent magnets are producing the flux. Yeah. And they are doing it all the time, no matter what you do. Yeah. So in the extreme case, let's say you are idling the machine at high speed. You basically are driving on a highway and decide to slow down very slowly. <laughs> so you simply cut all the power to the machine. In a permanent magnet machine, you will still have a relatively high losses, no load losses because of the permanent magnet flux causing losses in the iron. 
yeah. you know, a wound field machine, you can, of course, cut the excitation all together. Yeah. Um, you only have to do with the mechanic, mechanical losses in the bearing and friction with air, stuff like that. Yeah. So in the, the low load, in the low load, high speed operating ranges, I think a wound field, wound rotor machine can be much more efficient or at least, let's say, significantly more efficient than a permanent magnet machine. And what about if you compared in that same situation the wound rotor to the induction machine? How do you think that would... Because it's quite similar in terms of you can change... You can control the induced uh, fields in the rotor quite well in that situation as well, or not... Probably actually not as much as you could with a wound rotor. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough question. They are very similar, at yeah. least. Yeah, that's certain. Okay. So, and and one other type of machine that fascinates me in you know in radial flux. Uh, so, we've got the we're talking about uh, interior permanent magnet, which is as you said very very common for traction motors, induction machines, which uh, which don't have permanent magnets in the rotor, and. You uh, you induce the the rotor magnetic field wound rotor machines which also don't have permanent magnets in the rotor, um, but it's a effectively an electromagnet that you control. And there's a third type which um, is a switch reluctance machine, and and they've kind of been on and off for some time, and people kind of coming into the market now with switch reluctance machines for propulsion or traction purposes. Um, and, and the advantage being you don't have rare earth magnets in the motor again, and you can control that uh, that rotor magnetic field. Uh, and perhaps the advances in power electronics we were talking about earlier par- partially uh, responsible for, for now these machines being more viable. But what, what, what are your thoughts on switch reluctance motors? Do you, do you see them having a significant place? Well, let's just say I'm not convinced yet. Okay. Again, I haven't gone through the mathematics or design process myself, so I don't have that great of an idea about what they are capable of. Yeah. But, well, it's quite easy to say, see that they are not being used in any major applications right now. Yeah. At least not as far as I'm aware of. Yeah. Why do you think that would be? What's the sort of uh, limiting characteristic of that sort of machine? Well, there are several. They are traditionally at least thought to be noisy and vibrate a lot easily. Mm. Maybe it's possible to design around that nowadays, but it's still difficult. Mm. It's something that you will have to work on. Yeah. Then what they can and can't do... I'm not sure there is anything they can do that some other topology can't do pretty much just as well in a more easy, easy to design way. Yeah. Yeah. So just sort of perhaps that they're interesting, but don't tip the balance in any particular way enough to to make it worth commercializing plus the problems to do with noise and things and it you always end up with this you've got rotor cooling problems potentially with switch reluctance machines and um, also um, relatively low power density because you, you can't really get very high uh, rotor magnetic fields 
Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, and on kind of motor topologies, like one of my pet topics, as many people listening will know, and actually the reason how I kind of came across you um, uh, some time ago was the axial flux motors. Um, so, um, you know, we're kind of seeing some activity now um, ax with axial flux machines. I, I you know, I, my personal feeling is there's a lot of potential there for axial flux in the market. And when people, I, I, I do think the lack of uh, axial flux is, is partially down to the lack of the simulation tools, 3D. Having had to model axial machines myself, um, or, you know, not actually myself, the, the clever people <laughs> that works with me um, did that. But it was quite difficult because you couldn't, um, couldn't do 3D uh, simulation of the electromagnetic fields easily. So you always had to sort of transpose it into a design that you could model and then convert it back. And there was an awful lot of, uh, it, was, it was difficult and not overly accurate. Um, so designing an axial flux machine has been quite hard to date because it is a 3D magnetic flux in that machine. Do you think that we might see more um, activity around axial flux? Do you, do you think there's potential there? And and by the way, you are allowed yeah. to say no because I'm not. Uh, it's a it was a pet topic, but uh, obviously I'm not involved directly in that anymore. So I'm, I'm easy either way. That's an honest opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, obviously, the field is booming right now. We are seeing lots of interest in axial flux machine. I think Mercedes acquired Yasa, which was one of the maybe mm. most known players on yeah. that field. Yeah, someone said to me uh, just yesterday, they were saying Yasser, Yasser is a technical term, not a brand name. <laughs> they were sort of a little bit offended um, by the fact that they've they've got it. Um, uh, yeah, but they've been around for a long time, Yasser, with the, the Taurus style axial flux machines. So sort of dual rotor, single stator, which has some really neat potential in terms of packaging and... Uh, power density and, and things like that but some some issues as well torque ripple and noise being um being being a couple of those but yeah in, in, it is interesting that um daimler have have acquired that business to to bring that product in-house and and and, and uh, really sort of scale up the production um do you, do you see other kind of um activity around axial flux well activity is there of course plenty of players on the field and well, I do think that the topology itself, it offers some benefits. Mm. So it's not all hype <laughs> there. Like you mentioned, you can get a nice torque density, especially in smaller machines, like the kind you usually have in EVs. Yeah, oh, good. Um, so, so then the nature of your work means that you're seeing what people are thinking about doing a long time in the future. So you're sort of involved at that early stage, helping people create concepts and work out machine designs. If you had some tips or thoughts on future technology trends in machine design and the direction of travel, what would you say they are? Okay, maybe of the trends, again, if we consider like traction or aviation applications is that the speeds are going up. And by speeds, I mean the RPMs, the surface speed of the rotor, the electrical frequency. Mm. They are all going up a bit at least. 
you are seeing more and more high-speed applications. And that's uh, precisely because of, of the fact that it's easier to get a nice power density and a smaller machine when you have a higher speed. Again, of course, you may need a gearbox for that, which is one of the trade-offs that you will have to consider. Yeah. But anyways, the trend there is evident. And this is... So my, my take on that has, has typically been that in an electrical machine and the power electronics, the thing that costs you money is current. And um, by going to higher speed machine, you can have the same um, same sort of torque output through a transmission, etc. But for much less current um, at the machine or, th or through the electronics. So you can kind of reduce the size of the machine, take copper out, take magnet out, take the active materials out by going higher speed and actually reduce the size of the electronics as well, potentially by going higher speed, um, but still achieve the same driveline performance. And and the, the sort of rule of thumb in my head to a point, because this isn't true when you start to get into bearing problems and things at very, very high speeds, but mechanical torque, so mechanical torque is cheaper than electrical torque. <laughs> so a transmission... Yes. Um, to give you a, you know, trying to do a, a low speed, high torque motor is typically a lot more expensive than a higher speed machine coupled to a transmission using some mechanical advantage there to give you the, the torque output that you want. It, it, do you think that's, is is that the the key thing that's driving it? And, 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 and if it is, do you think it's costs? Like people try to take cost out of the system or do you think it is all about performance because the other thing as well is that even with the transmission typically that system will be um significantly lighter because you're getting rid of steel magnet copper out of the machine is it is it weight that's driving the high-speed machines or cost do you think well depends again who you ask in an ev application i think it might be a combination of cost and efficiency okay and efficiency, of course, is determining the battery cost. Yeah. Like how many kilometers you get per kilowatt hour determines how many kilowatt hours you need in your battery. And the batteries are still one of the most expensive components in the car. So. Mm, okay. And the efficiency, I hadn't really thought about that, actually. So a higher speed machine, do you think, is that... Because you can reduce the ohmic losses in a high-speed machine, because you, you're going to have the, the more you push the speed, you're going to have other significant loss mechanisms coming into play. But um, from an efficiency point of view, what's the key driver there? Yeah, most of the time it's the ohmic losses that get reduced because, well, simply put, you can have a smaller machine, mm. a smaller volume of copper producing losses, so the total losses will be smaller, of course. Of course, when you go to higher speed and higher frequencies, the iron losses mainly, they will grow. Also, if you have any conductive bodies in the motor, the eddy current losses will grow as well. But usually the iron losses are the most significant of those two. Now regarding the importance or relative importance of copper losses and iron losses, that again depends a lot on the application and the type of the machine, how it's loaded, how it's cooled. Yeah. 
what kind of operating point is it's operating on. If you consider the rated point of an EV motor, for instance, usually they are mostly copper losses and the iron losses are more, more significant at those low torque high speed operating points that we also discussed earlier. Yeah, yeah. If you consider aviation motors, they are usually at least the kind of prototypes you see in populist literature and so on, they are usually much more heavily loaded and they are almost all copper losses in order to get the kind of power density they want. Okay, uh, interesting. So sort of two different mechanisms, but the answer potentially is similar um, in terms of higher speed. Uh, and and, and when, when you say, do you, do you sort of see a point at which the speed stops like you know is there a practical limit or could we could we see a 30,000 rpm traction motor in the future do you think or if, if even higher 40,000 rpm traction machine i think that is mostly a question of the transmission what is practical to build which is outside my expertise again. I just heard a few transmission engineers collapse um, up the streets at this prospect of dealing with a <laughs> 40,000 RPM motor. I think I certainly hear a lot of people, you know, 18, 20,000, they are there's significant challenges getting the reliability, durability on that sort of transmission system. So um, it'd be interesting to see how much further it can be pushed and um, maintaining reliability and, and, and of course, efficiency. It, efficiency in the transmission um yeah very uh good so I, i'm just mindful of the time um we've actually run out of time uh so apologies for uh, taking you over there but um and it's sort of in a final word um looking forwards what are you um you know what are you most excited about in the next year uh in the next year um, that's a short <laughs> ah, sorry years years plural that was me um in the in in the next few years what are you most excited about in the next few years let's say well all kinds of things traction of course my one of my pet topics aviation especially let's see what way that is going to go if the ev tall bubble is going to burst like some people predict or not if we actually will have flying cars for at least some folks in the future, that's interesting to see uh, regional aviation. If we are gonna be see, gonna be seeing electric planes carrying some two dozen passengers for shorter distances than the planes nowadays are doing, that will be cool to see. So maybe those two things. Oh, interesting. So, Auntie, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it's been it's always fascinating um talking to someone who's so deep in uh the, the sort of technology development side of things i'll i'll put some links in the show notes for people so they can uh find you and uh find what you're doing at smith lab um and you know hopefully if they if they want some uh machine uh challenging machine design problems looking at uh you might be able to uh to to help some people out um in the in the future so Again, thanks for taking the time out to uh, to talk to me today. Thank you.